People have told stories of the strange and supernatural for centuries. Tales of the restless dead return to haunt the living. Whispers of damned souls doing the devil's bidding on earth. Rumors of inhuman things that still hunt the old forests, untouched by the glare of modern life. There may be more to these stories than you could ever imagine. Join us tonight as we delve into the deeper truth inside these mysteries. Ahoy, and welcome to the Realm of the Supernatural podcast. Right, tonight we've got an interview with Steve Boucher, uh, and he comes on to tell us about his alien encounters, which, you know, I found it absolutely fascinating uh, from start to finish. I think it's a great story. So I hope you guys find it interesting as well. He also plays us out with a little bit of recorder, which I've never read recorder played like this you know so that's worth uh, that's worth the price of admission right there uh, obviously uh, we got our timings slightly wrong this is the problem when you've got all these different time zones uh, so it ended up being about uh, 11 o'clock at night my end uh, that's why Andy's not here because he you know he can't come out this time of night because of the low astral beings it's when they start coming out so yeah, he's tucked up in bed so yes there's no Andy today uh, and for that reason we've got we found out that iTunes has been putting the new reviews at the bottom for some reason uh, so a lot of people have left reviews for us uh, particularly in the American iTunes uh, and we've, n- we've not been doing them of late so we are going to do all those in one go on the next episode so if you've left a review recently and you haven't heard it that's why because we didn't know it was there uh, that being said, obviously last week I mentioned about sharing uh, the podcast with friends, family, etc. And uh, quite a lot of you, by the looks of the downloads, did that. So thank you very much. And we also had um, a few people buying t-shirts uh, and hoodies. I think that was you, Ryan. Uh, so thank you very much for that. We do appreciate it. And we appreciate every single review we get. So if you can keep them coming, like I say, it'd be much appreciated. So that being said, let's get into today's show. So here's Steve talking about his alien encounters. I believe your first sort of encounter was, uh, well, in your lifetime, because obviously there's there's some things that happened before you're born on this earth. But um, so the first encounter happened when you was about four years old, I believe. Um, if you just want to walk us into that, exactly what happened, and yeah, the first, I think I was about two, two and a half years two. old, and mm-hmm. happened, yeah, and then I had the pre-birth memories before that, but so I was aware I was going to be coming into this world, and you know, but uh, I'll start with the the first one that I had here on the planet, yeah. <laughs> Go from there. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but I'll try it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I was about um, about two and a half years old. I was living in Owen Sound at the time with my parents, and um, I had this little stroller thing that I used to. Um, my mother used to put me in it. It had wheels on it, and it had a tray, and it sort of surrounded my body. So. Uh, uh, I could I could walk around in this thing, you know, and uh, 
she'd sit me outside in that and uh, she could see me through the back door and uh, see where I was and what I was doing and stuff. So uh, there was a honey house behind our, our house there. We lived in the back of a house in an apartment in this house. And there was a honey house behind us that uh, uh, the guy had a, an aviary or apiary. I'm not sure what's the correct term, but he used to make honey. And uh, he had some of the best honey in in the area, and people would go there to buy their honey from him. Yeah. And so uh, I used to wheel my way down to the the honey house and talk to him. And that and my mother saw that I was able to do this. So one day she gave me some money, like a, a five dollar bill or something, and she said, uh, "Can you go?" to the honey house and uh, buy some honey from Mr. Scholl. And I said, okay. And I thought, you know, I was only two and a half. I thought I was doing something really good, you know. And uh, so she put the money on my tray and she said, he'll give you the honey and he'll give you some some change and you come back here and, and give it to me. And I said, okay. So off I went on my little cart and she phoned him from the, house, uh, the apartment and told him I was coming. And he came down, down the stairs and he had uh, a jar of honey. And so I picked up the honey and uh, gave him the money. He gave me the change. And uh, I headed back to, uh, uh, to the apartment. And she could see me the whole time. Like the honey house was only maybe uh, about uh, 50 or 60 feet away. And uh, so I came back and she took the honey and the money and everything. And she, and I thought I'd done something really good, you know. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, I got this in my head. And one day I was in the, uh, in the apartment and I noticed on top of the dresser that uh, my dad had left his change and a $50 bill sitting up there. So I opened the drawers. And I climbed up the drawers like stairs, and I grabbed the $50 bill and took it. And I had it in my hand, and I went to the door, and my mother said, oh, you want to go out? And I said, yeah. And so she took me and put me in that little dolly thing, and off I went to the honey house. And uh, a few minutes later, uh, my mother got this call from Mr. Scholl, and he said, how much, money, how much honey do you want? He said, uh, Stevie's here with a $50 bill. And she said, what? And uh, she said, oh, that was on top of the dresser. Oh, the little bugger must have climbed up there and got it, you know. And so it was uh, it was pretty funny. But uh, anyway, when I got back, she said, don't ever take money like that again without telling me. And, you know, so I said, OK. And, and then uh, I was outside in this little cart thing. And. Uh, I could hear somebody calling my name in my head. And I looked around. I couldn't see anybody. And I said, where are you? And they said, we're around behind the bushes. They said, do you see the bushes? And I looked, and there were these bushes that were pretty high. And uh, I said, yeah. And they said, come around the back of there, and you'll see us. So I said, okay. So I started across the grass, and it was a little difficult to maneuver this thing on grass, but it came around the side of the building and there was this uh, big saucer-shaped craft sitting 
behind the bushes in the in the yard there. And there were two men standing outside, uh, two beings. And uh, the one looked at me and he said, we've been waiting for you. And he came over to me. And to me, this didn't seem unusual because when you're two and a half years old, everything is new to you. you know? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. So I just figured this is normal. And he picked me up out of this uh, little cart thing and took me on board the ship. And he laid me down on, on this cot in the ship. And the other guy that was with him laid down on a similar cot next to me. And these were like, uh, like gurneys, sort of, you know. And then he started taping me up with wires. And uh, I said, what are you doing? And he said, he said, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. And uh, just those words alone made me worry a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, my friend here, you're going to get part of him, and he's going to get a part of you. And I didn't understand what he was talking about, and I started yelling, no, no, I want to keep all my parts. I want to keep all my parts. And uh, so I started calling for my mother. But... Uh, he said, it's okay. He said, don't be afraid. It's not going to hurt and you'll be fine. And they did something where they uh, exchanged something with me and this other being. And I don't know. I, I think they gave me an implant. And uh, so anyway, uh, after this was done, they took me and they put me back in the little cart and they said, you can go home now. So I started off back to the apartment. When I came around the corner uh, from the bushes, my mother was standing uh, with her hands on her hips and this very angry look on her face. No, and she yeah. started shaking her finger at me going, where were you? She said, I told you to always stay where I can see you. Don't ever leave the yard or go anywhere where I can't see you. And I said, I was over there. And she said, well, come on in the house. And she took me in the house and... Uh, brought me into the living room, put me on the floor. And uh, so I, I was uh, crying because I knew she was mad at me. And then uh, shortly after that, I heard this uh, voice in my head saying, uh, calling my name again. And I looked around the room and I said, where are you? And the voice said, climb up on the back of the couch and look out the window. So I climbed over the, climbed up the back of the couch and there was like a, a window that was sort of, uh, not really a bay window, but it stuck out a little bit outside. So I, I climbed up and I was looking out the window and I said, where are you? And they said, look up. So I looked up and I saw this thing fly across the sky, like a bright light that just went across the sky. And, uh, I was all excited and I said, wow, I said, was that you? And they said, yes. And uh, so I said, can you do it again? And they said, well, yes, we'll do it again. And he said, I'll tell you when to look. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, look now. And I looked up and at the same spot, I saw this light go across again for a second time, very fast. And, uh, I said, uh, how, if you're way up there, 
how can you talk to me? And they said, because we can hear what you hear and we can see what you can see. And I thought that was really strange. And uh, so anyway, I said, uh, are you going to come here? And they said, well, no, not today, but uh, uh, you'll see us again. We'll come back uh, soon. And I said, what do you look like? And they said, well, we can show you what, what we look like. And they said, uh, look over between the couch or the, between the chair and the doorway. So I looked over to that corner of the room between the chair and the doorway. And I started to see a being materializing there between the, the chair and the door. And he was like a tall, uh, well, to me, he seemed tall, but he was actually short. Uh, it was about maybe four feet tall or so, and with a very large head and very dark black eyes that kind of curved up the side. And he was wearing some sort of a, a silvery kind of uniform. And uh, I said, is that what you look like? And he said, yes. And uh, uh, so anyway... Uh, uh, I, uh, were the, uh, sorry, were the, were the first beings that took you on, uh, for, you know, the ones that were behind the bush then, were they uh, human looking? No, they, uh, they were greys like this image that they showed me, but uh, I had forgotten what they looked like because after every encounter, they wipe your memory. Yeah. I guess it's like a standard protocol with them. And uh, I wish they wouldn't do that because, uh, <laughs> you know, when you when you have an encounter with them, it seems like the first time all over again, yeah. and then you experience that initial fear, you know, every time. Uh, so anyway, uh, that was uh, pretty much for that episode. Uh, there was one other thing that he, uh, I asked him, I said, how can you see what I see and hear what I hear? And he said, well, because uh, you have a part of us, and we have a part of you. And uh, I said, well, does that mean I can see what you can see and hear what you hear? And he said, not yet, but maybe later. So there was an expression that my mother used to use whenever I got confused. She said, no, you've got your wires crossed. Hmm. And so I said, is it like I have my wires crossed? And he said, yes. He said, that's a very good way to, to explain it. And so anyway, he said, we'll see you again. And, uh, but not today. So that's where that encounter ended, ended when my dad and I were coming back from somewhere at night. And I, I believe this was still in own sound. And um, my mother wasn't with us. There was just the two of us. And I don't remember where exactly we were coming back from. But we were driving down a, a like a, a back country road. Yeah. And there were trees like on both sides. Uh, I think they were evergreen trees. And uh, in those days, uh, the old cars used to have a, 
a shelf behind the back seat and the window would kind of slope down over that shelf. And uh, it was uh, cool when you're a kid because uh, I could climb up there and lay on that shelf and look up at the sky. So that's what I was doing. I climbed up in the back there and I was laying on that shelf looking up through the back window at the stars. And uh, I noticed one of them was moving. And uh, it was, seemed to be getting bigger and bigger. And, and uh, I think I had some communication with them. Like somebody was talking to me again in, in my head. And when they started to get pretty close, I decided to ask my dad what this was. So uh, I got down and I climbed over the front seat. I was sitting in the passenger seat. And I said to my dad, what's that light out there? And he said, what light? And I said, that light. And I pointed and, and he looked. And at that time, this thing was flying at treetop left, matching our speed as we were driving down the road. When my dad saw it, he went into kind of a panic and, and he tried to outrun it. And uh, so we were racing down this back road that was, there was no cars on it. And it was... Uh, dark outside. I'm not sure how late at night it was, but uh, uh, anyway, this uh, thing, I said, what is it? And he said, shut up, leave me alone. And he looked like you could see he was visibly shaken. Yeah, yeah. And I knew he was upset, but I couldn't figure out why. But normally he wouldn't talk to me like that. You know? And so uh, we're trying to outrun this thing and it shot ahead and came down in the road in front of us, and it lit up the whole road. So my dad stopped the car, and uh, we were sitting here in the car watching this thing, and it's just sitting there in the road with all these lights. And uh, and then my dad seemed to get like kind of a, a calmness came over him, but he was concerned, and he said to me, he said, you stay in the car. Whatever you do, he said, don't get out of the car. You stay here. And he said, and stay low so they don't see you. And he said, I'm going to go and see what they want. So uh, I, I said, okay. And so he got out and he started walking toward the ship. And there were two men. I think it was probably the same two. We're standing in the road in front of the ship. The one um, was probably the leader, and over his left shoulder behind him, there was another being. And they both looked uh, like the same kind of being with the large heads and the big black eyes. And so my dad walked up to the, the one being, and he was standing there talking to him. And I was peeking over the dashboard watching this year. And my curiosity was building up and building up. And uh, I couldn't resist it anymore. I, I thought, I've got to go and see who he's talking to. I want to I wanna see who he's talking to and see if I know them. And uh, so I disobeyed him. I knew I was going to be in big trouble for it. But I disobeyed him. And I got out through the driver's side. And I walked uh, up behind him. And he could see me coming, or he couldn't see me coming, but he could hear me coming. And so he put his hand behind his back, and he went 
like that, motioning me to, to get back. And uh, I just came up behind him, and he was blocking the vision of the being he was talking to, so he couldn't see me. And uh, but the being, I believe, knew I was there and everything. There. You know, so he just suddenly looked around the side of my dad, like, like that, and looked right at me, and he said to my dad, uh, I could hear him in my head. He said, "You seem to be concerned about the child." So my dad kind of laughed this sheepish sort of laugh. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, uh, that's my boy. And then he turned to me after he knew the being saw me. He turned to me and he said, I told you to wait in the car. I told you not to get out of the car. Now go back and get back in the car and wait until I'm finished. And uh, I said, but I want to see, you know. And um, so the the being talking to my dad that I believe was the leader, he said, would you like my crew member here to uh, take him back to the car for you? And my dad said, no, that's okay. We, we have to get going anyway. He said, my wife's waiting at home and we have to go. And uh, the being just looked at, at the other being and he immediately came over to me and took me by the hand and he walked me back to the, to the car. And, uh, my dad and the other being were watching him walk me back to the car, and my dad had this look on his face like he was very uncomfortable with this idea, but there wasn't much he could do about it. And he saw that the other being wasn't hurting me or anything. And so I got in the car, and the other being uh, got in beside me in the driver's seat, and I was in the passenger seat, and uh, we watched my dad go with the other being that I think was the leader onto the ship. So uh, this being that was with me he pulled the door closed and uh, he uh, he grabbed onto the steering wheel and he said, uh, what does this do? And I said, oh, that makes the car go that way or that way, uh, whichever way you turn it. And he said, oh, I see. And then he looked down at the floor, at the pedals on the floor, and he said, what do those do? And I said, well, that one makes the car go, and that one makes it stop. And he said, oh. And so basically, he was babysitting me while my dad was being abducted. Yeah. And uh, so then he pointed to uh, the radio on the dashboard. He said, what is this? And I said, well, that's a radio I, I said, uh, you can hear people talking on it, and you can hear music. And uh, he said, oh, he said, can you talk back to them on it? And I said, no, you can only listen. He said, oh, I see. And uh, then he asked me uh, what I did at home. Or No, he asked me how to make the vehicle move. And I said, well, you have to put the key in it and turn the key in that little hole and that starts the engine and then you can make it move. And he said, oh, and he said, uh, do you have the key? And I said, no, my dad's got it. And he said, oh. And then he said, what do you do during the day? He said, do you, do you go to school? And I said, no, th uh, that's next year I will. So that's how I know I was four years old because I started school yeah. in kindergarten at age five. So, and, uh, so he kept me 
busy there and he was taking an interest in me and uh, something that adults around me didn't normally do. They didn't have conversations with me that were meaningful. They'd just tell me, well, go and do that or, or do this or, you know, but he was actually talking to me and I liked his company. And so uh, he kept me busy for about uh, at least 20 minutes or so. And then I saw my dad come out with the other being and they were standing uh, in the road in front of the ship again. And then the being looked at me and he said, I have to go now. And I said, well, can't you stay a little bit longer? And he said, well, maybe for a minute or so. And But he'd kind of run out of things to talk to me about okay. by that time. And, and uh, so then the other being that was with my dad nodded to him. And then he looked at me and he said, I do have to go now. And I said, can you, can't you stay a little longer? And he said, no, I really have to go. So he got out of the car and he walked back to, toward the ship, passed my dad in the road coming back to the, to the car. And, uh, my dad got in and he was kind of quiet. He just sort of sat there and we watched the, the two beings go onto the ship and then it took off. It lifted up off the road and it just kind of, floated off over the trees. So my dad started the car and we started uh, on our way home again. And uh, my dad, when I asked him about this, remembered everything up to that point. And, uh, uh, but what he didn't remember was that they came back a second time. And uh, the second time they did exactly the same thing. They we're at treetop level matching our speed, and then they went ahead, they came down in the road, and uh, this time, just the the one being got out, the leader, and he started walking toward the car. My dad had stopped the car, and I heard him say, oh, what the hell do they want now? And this being came over to the window, and he motioned for my dad to lower the window, and in those days, all the windows on cars had cranks. You had to crank down, you know. And so he lowered the window and he said, what is it? And the being said, you forgot these. And he handed him his glasses. And then my dad thanked him, put the glasses on, and he walked back to the ship and they took off again. And uh, I watched them for a little while. They were getting further and further up in the sky and this bright white light was getting smaller and smaller. And, and uh, so that was the end of that incident. I wanted to um, to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, okay, I'm presuming that you spoke to your father later on in life about about that situation. That, um, I yeah. mean, from his reaction, from that landing him, and him sort of knowing you know, what to do. It, I mean, obviously, from a parent's point of view, he's putting himself in arm's way to protect protect you, which is... That's uh, what I believe he did, yeah. Yeah. But do you yeah. think do you think he had any prior experience with himself? Because... Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, he never really talked to me about that, but I believe that he had prior experience with them because he seemed to... He was comfortable enough to get out of the car and go walk over and talk to them. Yeah. 
And only uh, a few minutes before that, he was panicking. So it was like uh, they must have been communicating with him or something, but somehow they got him to calm down. But he was still very protective of me. And uh, uh, he wanted me to stay hidden. He didn't want them to even know that I was there. And But I'm sure they already knew before they even came down. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so... Anyway, uh, it wasn't until about 1983, many years later, that I uh, that I asked him about it. And what had happened was uh, I bought uh, a book by Bud Hopkins called Missing Time. And at the back of the book, uh, after I finished reading it, at the back of the book, there was a little paragraph that he'd written that said, if you feel that you may have had any uh, encounters or experiences similar to the ones described in this book, and you would like to have them investigated, write to me at this address. And it was his publisher's address. And he said, I'll uh, try to uh, contact you and put you in touch with somebody that can help you in your area. So uh, uh, I had had just brief flashes of memory up to that point. And uh, one of them was the incident with my dad that I remembered. Uh, at that time, I only remembered up to the, the end of the first part, not when they came back the second time. And he had only remembered that much as well. When I went and asked him about it, he was very surprised. He said, oh, my God. He said, I thought that was a dream. <laughs> and uh, so we were both shocked to find out that we both had the same memory of, of this incident and of everything that happened. And he remembered himself putting his hand behind his back, going like that to motion me to get back into the car. But uh, up to that point, he had thought that it was a dream. And I confirmed that it wasn't because I had the same. So once I got that confirmation, I decided to write to Bud Hopkins. So I wrote him a letter and uh, describing uh, what I had experienced with my dad and that we both remember it. And surprisingly, about two year, two day, uh, sorry, two weeks later, he phoned the house and he got my mother on the phone and uh, he mentioned that your son wrote me a letter and uh, he believes that uh, some encounter with a UFO uh, along with your husband. And uh, he said, I, I would like to talk to him. And she said, oh, OK. So she called me. I was in my bedroom sitting there on the bed listening to the radio. And she said, Bud Hopkins is on the phone. And I nearly fell on the floor. I was so shocked, you know, because I didn't expect him to call me personally. And so I went and I got on the phone and uh, he said, I have reason to believe that you and your dad may have had a, a valid UFO experience. And he said, I was wondering, is there any way you can come to, uh, to Manhattan? He said, I have an art studio here and uh, you could stay in the studio. He said, I'd like to book uh, some hypnosis sessions for you. 
And I'd also like to book an appointment with a behavioral therapist that uh, will give you some tests to make sure that you're not crazy or anything like that. And he said, have you got any vacation time coming up? Well, I did, but my dad didn't. And uh, so he didn't. He said, I can't go. And so I told him, I said, well, he can't go, but I can go. So he said, well, uh, I'm going to uh, book you on a flight to Manhattan on what they call uh, the Sky Bus. He said it's a smaller jet, like a DC-10 sort of, that uh, a lot of businessmen and executives use it because it's it's uh, got none of the frills of the you know a, a full yeah, yeah. vacation type flight. So uh, he said, uh, and uh, a friend of mine will pick you up at the airport and bring you to my studio and give you a key. And he said, and uh, he'll give you a list of uh, the appointments for your hypnosis sessions and with the behavioral therapist. So I said, okay. And uh, I said, I I do have some vacation time. I was going to go and visit my friend up in Owen Sound, but I'll, uh, I guess I can go to uh, Manhattan. And my mother was reluctant to let me go you know, to a big place like that uh, by myself, even though I was, uh, you know, I was somewhere in my mid to late 20s, I think, at that time. And, uh, but she agreed. And so I, I took the flight. And when I got there, his friend Ted Blocher uh, was there at the airport with a sign that said Bud Hopkins on it. So I knew that must be him. And Ted Blocher, uh, he wrote a book with uh, Isabel Davies called uh, Incident at Kelly. It was about a, the Hopkinsville incident. Uh, mm. So anyway, I, I didn't know who he was at the time, but uh, I went to him and uh, he took me to uh, Bud's studio in Manhattan, gave me a key, and I went in. It was like a fully furnished apartment with a, a kitchen kitchen area and a bathroom and uh, a bedroom area with a king-size bed and the rest of it was like a, a big studio with all his artwork hanging on the walls and and so I went to uh, uh, to two of the hypnosis sessions with Dr. Aphrodite Clamar that did the, uh, the sessions in his book Missing Time and uh, uh, Bud had told me that he wouldn't be able to, to be there at the time, that, uh, but Ted would, would get me through it and everything. And uh, it turned out that Bud showed up about halfway through the week, and Aphrodite Clamar couldn't do the third session with me, so Bud did it himself. And uh, uh, he sent me to this behavioral therapist who... Uh, was a vegetarian. I'm not sure if she was vegetarian or vegan, but anyway, uh, uh, I was, I used, I liked my meat, you know, at the time to eat meat. And, and uh, she invited me to stay for lunch. And I said, okay. And so I had lunch with her and she gave me this smoothie kind of thing that was made with uh, uh, sunflower seeds ground up and 
I hated it. it. Tasted like wallpaper paste to me. It was just, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anyway, she did a number of tests on me. She did the Rorschach test uh, with the ink blots, and uh, she gave me uh, an IQ test and um, a test on American history, which I felt was a little bit unfair because I was Canadian, but it turned out I knew more about American history than I did about Canadian history, so I, I passed the, all the tests okay. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, uh, then afterwards, uh, back at the studio, uh, when Bud, Bud and Ted were there together, uh, they had arranged a surprise. They said, we're going to have all the uh, abductees that I've been working with in this area are going to meet here for like a little get-together. And he ordered pizza and, and pop and stuff. And so I got to meet some of these other abductees, and then I have pictures of them. Uh, and I met Isabel Davis, the, or Davies, the older woman that uh, worked with Ted Blocher on the, the book on the Hopkinsville incident. And uh, we were all kind of UFO experiences. And there was there was one fellow there that uh, he was the only one that seemed to have had a, an unpleasant experience. All the others, uh, it seemed to be fairly positive, you know. But this guy was absolutely terrified when it happened to him. And he disappeared for, uh, I believe he was gone for a day or two. And when he finally reappeared, uh, the police found him wandering down a dirt road. And uh, his uh, he was mumbling to himself like he, he went a little crazy for a while, I guess. And his shirt was all buttoned wrong. And... Uh, He'd urinated in his pants, and uh, the police found him, and they, they took him in and uh, basically got him back together, and uh, I don't know what happened to him. I guess he went home, but he was there, and he was the only one that had a, an unpleasant experience. One of the uh, other girls that were there, uh, when she had her experiences with them, she said, I thought they were elves and I was playing with them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, she uh, turned out to be somebody who worked for Arista Records. It's the recording label that Barry Manilow used. And uh, the other woman was uh, Rosemary Asnato. And she has a video on YouTube describing her experience, and uh, which I discovered years later. So after I left New York, uh, Bud told me, he said, if you want to have your case investigated further, uh, get in touch with a group called MUFON, and they have a chapter in Canada that you can, uh, you can meet them, and they'll help you with it. And I said, okay. So when I came back to Canada, a couple of weeks later, there was a, it just happened that there was a MUFON symposium in Toronto. So I went there, I figured, well, if it's a MUFON, MUFON symposium, then uh, MUFON's going to be there for sure. So I went there and uh, uh, I went to a workshop 
for experiencers and told my story. And when I came out, I was listening to one of the lectures and J. Allen Hynek was there and he walked right by me and, you know, only like a couple of feet away. And I wish that I had stopped him and shook his hand like I met the guy, but uh, I never got that opportunity. He just kind of walked by. So I met a guy that I thought was from uh, MUFON and I started talking to him about my, my story and I spilled my story to him. And then I found out at the end that he wasn't from MUFON. He was from QFORN, the Canadian UFO Research Network. And they're no longer in existence now. Uh, so they kind of took over my case from there and put me in touch with uh, the hypnotist in Toronto. And I had several more, more sessions with, with her. And uh, I was what they called a... Uh, a multiple experiencer. I had several experiences, but they all seem to have come to an end around 1976. And in uh, uh, 1976 was the last one that I'm consciously aware of. And I had uh, met uh, a woman that was to become my wife around that time. So I got married around then. And uh, the experiences seem to stop after that. You think this stopped because you 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 got married? Is do you think that was some aspect to it? Well, it could it could be, but uh, Bud Hopkins told me that uh, usually when you have your uh, experiences explored under hypnosis, they stop bothering yeah, you. Yeah, yeah around after and uh, uh, I'm not really sure why they uh, they stopped because uh, uh, I would have liked to have had them continue but uh, I've heard several reasons why they stop uh, I was told that um, that they they don't want you to remember and they wipe your memory uh, because they want you to live like a semi-normal life. And once you remember these experiences that you've had with them, you can no longer live a normal life because it, yeah. it changes your perspective of reality to such a degree that uh, it's just not possible anymore. Uh, so uh, QFORN investigated my case from there, and they uh, we found... Uh, we found a, a a house that we had that my band had played for a party at, and uh, uh, we were abducted later on that night on the way home from this party. The, the whole band was, and I've talked about this in some of my other videos. Um, and so uh, uh, we managed to find the date in the guitarist's. Uh, Logbook. He used to keep a log of all of his gigs that he played, and we were able to determine the date from that. And uh, we went to the house where the party was because his girlfriend remembered where it was, and and uh, they had me draw a little floor plan of the the house beforehand uh, of what I remember. 
And I remembered the stairs being on the left when you come in the door. And where the band had set up, we set up the drums, there was a, a, a spring-loaded pole lamp in the corner that uh, was wedged between the ceiling and the floor that we had to remove to get the bass drum in. And when we found this house again, uh, and we went inside, the stairs were where I said they were, and we looked in the corner, and there was a divot in the ceiling where the pole lamp was. Mm. So uh, it was good confirmation that that we did actually play at that house. And the people there said, yes, we had a party uh, back around that time. And uh, when we left that party, uh, just before the abduction, there was a, uh, a guy that nobody seemed to know that came up to us. And he was a little bit drunk at the time. And he had long hair and dressed in jeans. And and he said, are you guys going to St. Catharines? And we said, yes. And he said, uh, would you mind giving me a ride? And so I said, well, uh, you'll have to talk to the guitarist. He's driving. So he asked the guitarist, and he said, yeah, we can give you a lift to St. Catharines. And this was pretty late at night, because we'd already played a gig earlier that evening in Niagara-on-the-Lake. So uh, it was about maybe 2.30 in the morning, uh, somewhere around there when we left. And... Um, So I, I won't get into that experience uh, at this point because I already talked about it on a number of other videos uh, on YouTube. So it's there if you want to look at it. But um, the hitchhiker, after the incident happened, after the abduction, when we were all reassembled back in the, in the van, the hitchhiker was gone. And uh, I wondered what happened to him because it was in the winter time. It was pretty cold outside, and he was where the incident happened was in Jordan, which was quite a ways from uh, St. Catharines. So I was wondering, did he walk home in the cold? Like that's an awfully long walk, you know. Uh, and I didn't find out until uh, last year that after my video had been released of the incident where the band was abducted, uh, I've had a lot of people contacting me uh, with uh, Facebook friend requests and stuff like that and uh, sending me emails and, and uh, they all seem to want to talk to me, but most of them I found had had experiences of their own and wanted to tell me their story because, you know, it's something you don't normally talk to with your friends and family when okay. something happens, you know. And so uh, I try to answer as many as I can, and some I accept as friends, and some I don't. Uh, there's a certain criteria that I use. But anyway, one of the people that contacted me said that he had an experience very similar to mine. And he said, I was... Uh, uh, at a party in Vineland that night, and it was cold, it was the winter time, and he said, uh, 
what got me about your story was you mentioned that the one of the beings had tripped over the snare drum stand and the drum fell out the back of the van. And he said, I remember that. And he said, I believe that I am the hitchhiker that you picked up at the party. Okay. And so I thought, okay, uh, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And I said, what makes you think that you were the hitchhiker? And he started describing the conversation that took place in the van uh, between him and the uh, guitarist girlfriend. And uh, as he was telling me what he was, he was trying to pick her up, basically. Yeah. And because uh, he was a bit drunk and he was a, a little bit obnoxious that night. And uh, the guitarist kept giving him dirty looks. And he was getting mad because this guy was hitting on his girlfriend, you know. And uh, I had forgotten all this until he started telling me. And then it started coming back. And I said, yeah. And there were certain parts of the conversation that he told me word for word exactly what I was remembering. And I had never mentioned this on any of my other videos or I hadn't talked about it on any videos. So there's no way that anybody could have known this unless he was the guy. And uh, so he confirmed for me that he was the hitchhiker. And uh, one of the first questions that I asked him was, I remembered aboard the ship, there was somebody wearing long underwear. And uh, the Canadian UFO Research Network guys that had interviewed all the members of the band nobody was wearing long underwear that night. So that was one of the first things I asked him, were you wearing long underwear? And he said, yes. He said, uh, I was supposed to meet a friend of mine at the uh, party, but he didn't show up and he was my ride home. And uh, so I was kind of stuck there and he said, I didn't know anybody. And the, the, um, uh, the host of the party kept giving him drinks, and so he just kind of sat in the corner and got drunk. And uh, But when he described the conversation uh, that happened in the back of the van as we were going home, uh, I was remembering everything word for word, what he was telling me. And so I was surprised because it confirmed for me, it was like a major breakthrough in my case that, he actually remembered this stuff and that it was him. And so I asked him, I said, well, at the end of the incident, I said, you disappeared. And we were wondering what happened to you. And I said, how did you get home? And he said, well, he said, your guitarist was very angry with me for trying to pick up his girlfriend. And he said, I felt uncomfortable going the rest of the way with you guys. So he said, I asked the beings if they would give me a lift home. And they did. <laughs> so I was surprised when he told me that. But he said they took him home and they dropped him off near his house. And uh, I guess his dad uh, noticed uh, something happened there. And some of the neighbors noticed it, even though it was in the middle of the night. I guess the lights woke them up or something. And and uh, so they were talking, all the people in his neighborhood were talking about this UFO that had dropped him off. And, and uh, 
word was getting out, and he said uh, a little while after that, all of a sudden this black limousine pulled up in front of his house. And he said two guys, that, the government guys, got out. And they were kind of big, burly guys. Uh, but he said they they looked like their skin wasn't quite like ours. It was kind of an olive complexion. Okay. And uh, he said they came to him and his dad and told them to stop talking about UFOs. They said don't don't mention anything more about this incident. If anybody asks you, don't talk to them about it. Just you know, pretend that it never happened. And he said, no, I'm not, a, I'm not going to agree to that. And he said, one of these guys grabbed him by the arm and started squeezing his arm and said, you're not going to talk about this to anybody. And he said, he, he finally agreed. He said, okay, okay, I won't, you know. And uh, so then they, they left. But he described this limousine as, uh, he said, it was unlike any car I've ever seen before. It was black. There were no manufacturer's logos on it or anything. It was just a straight black limousine, like a big car. But he said, I couldn't tell you what kind it was or what the manufacturer was because it didn't look like anything I've ever seen before. And they drove off. And uh, so I'm in touch with this guy now. And he, uh, he was reluctant to reveal much about himself. He has a Facebook profile, but it's completely blank. There's no timeline, no friends list, no picture, no background picture, nothing, just like a stock timeline. And uh, the only thing there is his name. And he set that up so that he could communicate with me. Okay. <laughs> Did he mention if he had had any other experiences himself? Yes, yes. He had uh, uh, a couple of other ones that uh, happened in St. Catharines. Was this, <clears throat> was this prior or uh, to your abduction together or, or afterwards? I think this was afterwards. Okay. But he had a, 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 an abduction happen to him on around Cushman Road which is at the uh, eastern end of St. Catharines. And uh, there were people around that actually saw this happen, saw him get abducted. And then he was returned to around the same spot um, a few minutes, like several minutes later. But he said to him it seemed like a lot longer. And when they returned him, uh, there were people there that actually saw him being returned. And he said uh, they all seemed to be really surprised. I think one lady made the sign of the cross, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he has had some other experiences. And he's kind of a... Uh, an enigma to me. Like I know that he was the guy that was with us in, in uh, when my band was abducted. But some of the incidents that he's described to me uh, are different sort of incidents. But they happened with these the greys, the, the beings with the big heads, and 
it's the same group. Mm. So, well, uh, obviously, from all this, you must have some uh, inkling as to why we you know what this is all about. So, what's your feelings on that? I'm presuming they've not told you directly, but um, you know, what what do you think? That, what do you think the agenda is? Well, um, uh, there are several schools of thought on that. Uh, one is the hybrid agenda that they uh, they capture uh, human samples and that they take uh, samples of your DNA, uh, uh, sperm, and eggs from the women, and uh, they create uh, a group of hybrids that are half human and and half uh, gray, where they inject some of their DNA into the uh, uh, into the egg. Uh, so that could have been one of the reasons. Um, uh, it's hard to say really what their what their agenda was. Uh, but but in, that, in general, do you think feel feel as though it's for the benefit of mankind? Would you go as far as to say that? I would. I yeah. do believe that it is. Uh, for the benefit of mankind. Uh, however, there have been other incidents reported with the greys that uh, were not as uh, amicable as mine. Uh, some of them were absolutely terrifying. There's one uh, woman that has some YouTube videos out where she claims they actually tortured her and she hates them. Yeah. You know, uh, for me, they were. Uh, they were pretty uh, considerate with me, you know, they considered my feelings and, uh, you know, they're at the initial point where contact occurred, I was terrified, you know, mm. but they managed to calm my fears and uh, get me calmed down. And they uh, basically told me that they, they weren't going to do me any harm. They just wanted to run some tests on some of us. And, um, and they used, uh, in the incident where my band was abducted, uh, they, they took myself, the hitchhiker, the bass player, and the drummer. The guitarist and his girlfriend remained in the van. They didn't go with us. And uh, they used a kind of technology on me that was like, uh, it looked like the handheld portion of a contemporary phone. And it was kind of uh, rectangular shaped, about an inch or so thick. And there was a light in it. And when he turned this light on, he held his arm out and he showed me. He ran the light over his arm. And where he ran it over his arm, I could see his uh, bones underneath his skin and uh, he said now I'd like to try it on you and I said okay is it gonna hurt and he said no it won't hurt but he said it may tingle a little bit and he said would you hold your arm out like this and so I did I held my arm out and he took this light um, and he shone it over my arm and it was like a green light and wherever the light hit my arm 
I could not only see my bones, but I could see the muscles, I could see the veins and the arteries, and I could actually even see my heartbeat pulsing in, in the veins. And I was surprised that I could see all this on my arm, but all I could see on his when he did it was just the bones. So there's a, obviously a different in, difference in physiology there. That, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I described this in uh, uh, the first time I decided to go public, after 45 years of keeping this under wraps and using a pseudonym, I decided to go public at the uh, Alien Cosmic Expo in, in Brantford. And uh, I got up and I spoke to an audience uh, of about maybe two or three hundred people in the experiencers room. And I described my story and in the audience was uh, uh, a man named Grant Cameron that at the time I had no idea who he was. I knew he had a table there and I knew he must have been of some importance, but I didn't know his background or anything about him. And he approached me at the end of uh, my story and he said to me, he said, I know your story. And I said, how do you know it? I said, I've never told it in public before. And he said, I read about it. He said, back in the 70s, uh, he said, I've been uh, studying uh, the connection between musicians and UFO experiences. And he said, your story was uh, published, but you used a pseudonym at the time. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, I tried to find out who you were back then. And he said, I contacted QFORN, the Canadian UFO Research Network, and I spoke to uh, a fellow there by the name of Larry Fenwick. Well, he was one of the three investigators that came out and worked on my case. And he was also the journalist that wrote the uh, wrote up the journal and published my story in it for the first time. And he was the one that assigned a pseudonym to me rather than use my real name because people weren't as open-minded back then as they are now. And uh, I was concerned that, you know, people would think that I was crazy. And they still probably do. I know there's a lot out there that do. But uh, anyway... Uh, he said, I tried to get your name from him, and he wouldn't give it to me. But he said, I read the story, and he said, I was very familiar with your story. And he said, when you got up and told the audience about it, he said, I was very surprised because I knew that story. So uh, that sort of forged a connection between myself and Grant Cameron. And uh, uh, he has done some interviews with me himself and uh, published them on YouTube. And a few years later, at another Alien Cosmic Expo, they moved it to Toronto. I went and I spoke again there. And there was a woman there by the name of Susie Hansen. And she was from uh, New Zealand. And she also had uh, many experiences throughout her life with the, with the Greys. And uh, when she was a little girl, they would bring her on their ship, and she met the hybrids there that were half gray and half human. And uh, they used to play together. And she had seen this device that they used on, on my arm to look under the skin. And when I was talking on stage, 
she came up behind me. She was the next speaker. And uh, she uh, she stopped me from leaving. And she said, I just want to tell the audience that this man talking about this uh, device, she says, I've seen that device. And uh, I've seen other versions of it, larger versions and, and stuff like that. And she uh, she thanked me for talking about that and for bringing that out because it helped to confirm part of her story as well. And so after she spoke, uh, uh, I went to her table to I was going to buy one of her books, and she said uh, she said hang on a minute she said I I need to talk to you, and she was just signing a book for someone else, and she said. I would like to do a little video of you on my cell phone talking about that uh, uh, that technology. And she said, if you would do that for me, let me do maybe like a five-minute video of you describing it. Uh, she said, I'll give you a copy of my book signed for free. And I said, oh, okay. So uh, uh, the next day I met with her and we went to a, an area that was kind of quiet. It was sort of a lounge area that wasn't really uh, available to most of the public. And we sat there and she recorded me describing this and, and she uses it in some of her uh, uh, presentations when she talks to an audience. She'll show them a little bit of that clip. Well, anyway, this was used on me uh, several years ago. And I just got a pop-up screen here. I got to close. Uh, so anyway, um, I talked about it in some of my other videos. And a woman in Hamilton, which is maybe about a, or no, she's in Guelph, which is probably about an hour and a half to two hour drive from where I live. Uh, she had watched my video describing this thing. And she actually found something on the internet uh, where this technology has recently become available to the public. And it's called a vein scanner. Okay. And, and it does the same thing, basically, uh, when you shine it on your arm. It shows where all the veins are. But the one that they used on me was a bit more advanced because it showed the muscles and the bones and everything. Yeah. This, this only shows the veins. But the technology is now available and a lot of doctors are are using it and nurses especially because uh, with some patients they can't find the vein because it's so small and when you shine this thing on the person's arm it shows where the veins are and they can give them an injection uh, without fishing around for the vein you know so uh, when uh, when this woman sent me a, a video of that I immediately sent it to Grant Cameron, and he knew right away what it was because I, he's heard my story a few times. And so he did a video with me describing it, and he also did a video with Susie Hansen describing it from New Zealand. And so it was, we were kind of confirming each other. And so that was another interesting part of the story that was uh, confirmed. Yeah. yeah. 
I just wanted to ask you uh, before you play us out. I just wanted yeah. to ask you um, about the communication side uh, with these entities. I mean, obviously you describe it as being uh, like telepathic. Um, mm-hmm. do, do I mean, what sort of language do they use when they communicate with you? Is it? I mean, is it? Um, you know, fantastic English. Is it robotic? Um, <clears throat> how would you describe the the way they communicate with you? Is it well, your own voice? Is it their voice? Well, uh, the best way to describe it is it's it was in perfect English. And it was like uh, if you're reading a book and you're seeing the words on the page and you're hearing them in your head, uh, usually I guess it's your own voice that yeah, you're, yeah. as you're reading these words uh, and you're getting the meaning from it. But you know it's not your thought, it's coming from the book. And uh, it's kind of like that. You hear the words in your head, and you know they're coming from an external source. They're not coming from your own mind. And um, it was in English. Now, I've done a bit of research on that, and I found out that they are trained in certain languages, these beings. And there was a couple of words that uh, the being didn't understand. One of them was uh, underwear, and the other one was souvenir. Uh, because uh, I asked him if I could keep my underwear uh, when he he told us that we had to take our clothes off for the tests. And, and he said, what is underwear? And I had to show him. I pulled the band on it and showed him, and he said, yes, you can keep that. And uh, at the end of the incident, I gave him one of my small recorders, you know, the, a little soprano recorder, uh, to keep as a souvenir. And he said, what is a souvenir? And so I described to him, it, it's like a gift to remember me by. So when they learn English, they learn English words. And souvenir is actually a French word. Yeah. And because he wasn't trained in French, this is my theory anyway, he didn't understand what that word was, so I had to explain it to him in English words so that he'd understand. And uh, so he took this little recorder from me, and uh, it's probably out there in space somewhere <laughs> in an alien museum someplace, and, you know. But... Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, you know. Yeah. Well, and fantastic. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, it's a fascinating story. It really is. And uh, I know. But thank mm-hmm. you again for coming on to, uh, with me tonight. But um, <laughs> talking about recorders, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously that was that's part of your story as well. And uh, like you say, yeah. there's a souvenir shop now on Mars or whatever with uh, recorders yeah. in, but. Uh, uh, he was going to graciously play us out with a little bit of recorder tonight. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh... So this is one of the recorders I play. It's a tenor recorder. I have a whole family of them. I've got a bass recorder that's even bigger than this one, and an alto and a soprano, and a sopranino, which is pretty tiny. And I've got one even smaller than that that you can just barely fit your fingers on. Mm. But anyway, so uh, 
This is what it sounds like. fantastic <laughs> i mean we, we 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 play obviously in the uk we we all get a recorder when we're when we're kids at school uh, yeah. and we play i don't know some shit like um uh mary had a little yeah uh, yeah twinkle twinkle little star but obviously yeah. <laughs> what you play is uh is incredible compared to what i've heard so uh yeah. thank you very much for that it's uh it's been okay. a pleasure it really has so um obviously if if they do get back in contact with you, I'd love to know about it. Um, yeah. If the hitchhiker comes up with any more information, happy to hear that as well. So uh, thank you very okay. much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you for having me. No I appreciate it. See, I told you that recorder was good. Uh, big thanks to Steve for coming on. It's, uh, like I say, it's a fantastic story. I, hope, I hope, like, really hope you all enjoyed it as well. Um. We've got some very interesting shows coming up, so look forward to those. And again, people have been sending in the weird story for the My Weird Story part of the show. Uh, we've got a few of them now, so if you've got a weird story and want to share it, please by all means send it to us. Uh, people have sent uh, on Messenger, they've sent by email, uh, and uh, Ryan even came on Skype and, and told us it over Skype, so... The options are there. It's up to you how you want to do it. If you've got a weird story, please send it to us. Uh, the email, obviously, is uh, supernaturalpod at gmail.com. So, yeah, look forward to reading those and uh, or having you on, even. But, anyway, have a great week. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. And we will see you on the other side. Well, they've gone. No, just for now. It wasn't the right time for us to meet. But there'll be other nights, other stars for us to watch. They'll be back. The all-new Toyota Highlander is designed to go Highlander. What's go Highlander, you ask? It means amplifying your comfort with available premium leather interior and ventilated seats. And amplifying your groove with an available booming 11-speaker JBL audio system. Or even amplifying your crew with roomy seating for up to eight. Don't just go. Go Highlander in the all-new Toyota Highlander. Toyota. Let's go places. JBL is a registered trademark of Harman International Industries, Incorporated.